Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Tomorrow, Janet Yellen, the Federal Reserve Chair, uh, is going to be beginning her testimony in front of Congress. Uh, and this is going to be somewhat more important than it has potentially in the past. I want to bring in Matt Maley, Managing Director and Equity Strategist at Miller Tabak and Company. Uh, Matt, you know, I want to talk a little bit about something that you pointed out in a recent uh, recent note where you said uh, that aside from just balance sheet considerations and when the Fed may raise rates next, one of the most important things that uh, Chair Yellen could talk about is asset prices. Can you give us a little bit of color around that? Well, you know, she came out uh, uh, and, you know, said, talked about stretch valuations and, and, and that took you know people a little bit back on saying, well, geez, if she's worried about it, uh, should we be worried about it? And uh, and and usually when when things are misinterpreted by by the public or by the uh, uh, financial press or the or the markets, uh, they they quickly march somebody out from the Fed to say, oh no no no, she didn't mean to say that. Well, she said the exact opposite happened. She, some more people came out from the Fed, including vice the vice chair, saying that uh, you know kind of reiterating what she was saying. So the reason why I worry about that a little bit is that you know people uh, have felt that the Fed has had their backs for quite some time now, and I'm not saying that Fed it, it, you know is suddenly going to be you know they're, they're looking to, for the stock market to go down in a significant way, but people have a lot of leverage as we see in the margin debt le- uh, numbers, and if uh, uh, people start to say, Jesus, the Fed doesn't have our, our back to the same degree, maybe I've got to unwind some of that leverage. So uh, it, it brings into some. Well, hold some on questions. a second. Wait, back up for one second, please. Sure. Uh, so you're saying if the Fed doesn't have our back, why does that relate to them saying, yeah, well, things look a little stretched because you know, in fairness. Things do look a little stretched. Yes, but it, you know, it, it's it's you know, for for some of these leverage players and, and and momentum players and and we all know we, it was interesting. Barron's this weekend had this uh, you know the cover story was about uh, you know the machine trading and a lot of that is very much momentum based. And if that momentum is going to slow down a little bit, uh, it might cause the market to roll over. Now that's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, uh, you know, I, it's it's funny when we talk about seven to ten percent pullbacks. Um, it seems like, well, geez, I don't know if it would be that bad. Well, geez, we've had one of those every single year since 1995. So it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world at all. Uh, but if, if uh, Janet Yellen starts talking about some of these, uh, continues to talk about some of these things, I should say, it could cause people to pull, pull on their horns a little bit. And to be honest with you, I think that would be, number one, it would be normal, but it would also be healthy for the market. Do you think people will buy that dip, Matt? Well, you know, the big question is going to be, uh, I think people isn't will it initially- odd, right? I mean, just isn't it odd that, how you know, stocks are always an opportunity, whether if they fall, they, you know, it's by the dip. If they go up, it's a momentum trade. There doesn't seem to be any point along the way where people say, you know, this is just too expensive and uh, I don't I don't want any part of it. Well, that's why I think what what we're seeing right now, because uh, not only from what uh, uh, Fed Chair Yellen and and the Vice Chair and the president, sorry, San Francisco Fed presidents have been saying about asset levels, but also the coordinated effort uh, talking about uh, you know shrinking the balance sheet, raising uh, uh, um, rates, and we're starting to see that creep out into the ECB, the B, the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, and even a little chatter about the BOJ. So when you get this kind of coordinated effort that seems to be coming out of the central 
the global central banks. Uh, some of those stretch valuations, I think people will have to change their thinking. This is not uh, an insignificant uh, change in, in stance. And as we heard uh, today from uh, you know, Jamie Dimon talking about uh, how uh, you know, we, we think we could see a pickup in volatility because we really don't know, we don't know what will happen when, when they start pulling back on this QE. Yeah, uh, you know, what Jamie Dimon was talking about was that uh, the mar- market may not be adequately prepared, right, as right. The, uh, as potentially uh, the Federal Reserve starts unwinding its balance sheet and the ECB uh, starts tapering its bond purchases. What, wanted... do they, what do they want, though? Do they do they want like a postcard in the mail? Do they want a little, you know, like they basically a... have gotten <laughs> a postcard I mean, in the That's mail my point. Yeah. 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 What's <laughs> more, other than, you know, getting in a biplane and flying along the beach with this, you know, a sign, I mean, what else... <laughs> Do you need to tell people they don't know? Clearly, they're not telling. It's not like they have some super secret sauce. I mean, they're waiting to see what's going on in the economy as well. I think that people. I mean, not to speak for you, Matt, but it seems like people are looking for what is really the guiding factor for the Fed because they have said it's you know inflation, but that's not really the case. They have said employment, but that's not really the case because the employment rate plunged there. Then you know people are saying, well, financial stability, but you know, is that really the case because they don't want to disrupt the markets, or is it? uh, you know, making sure that there's not another bubble. I mean, <laughs> sort yeah, of... it's, it's, they keep moving the goalposts both forward right. and back. You don't know, you know what, what's going to come next. Right. You know, the, you know, the other thing, too, is you, you have to worry. I mean, and again, this is I'm not saying because they're not saying this. But boy, at some point, I mean, back in the in the day, this is you know, going back to the very beginning, after, right after the crisis, uh, when Ben Bernanke came out and said, hey, listen, we can do all this monetary policy and, and provide all this liquidity. But it's only a kind of a stopgap measure or a bridge to, uh, you know, to where we can get we need some help on the fiscal side. Well, it looked like we we're finally going to get some help on the fiscal side at the beginning of the year. And now we're not going to get it. And it's almost I wonder if, if the Fed has thrown their hands up and said, "Hey, we can't, we can't be the uh, the parents that you know, you know, you're the 30 year old who's still living off me. <laughs> you need to get out there and, and do your thing." And uh, you know, it's about time that Washington stepped to the plate, and uh, we see more and more. Yeah. examples that they're not. So uh, uh, maybe they're finally saying, hey, you can't rely on us anymore. Uh, you need to uh, step to the plate. So we'll see what happens yeah. with that. The millennial market. Uh, <laughs> another thing that, that might have a pretty uh, significant effect on markets is bank earnings, which begin on Friday. And I'm wondering, you know, we have seen an expectation that fixed income trading revenues are going to be down 16% in the second quarter for the five biggest U.S. banks, trading in general down about 11%. Uh, is there anything in particular within the bank earnings that are going to uh, potentially have a material effect on uh, market movements. Well, the, the thing that's going to be interesting is that is, is that obviously after these uh, uh, numbers out of the, the C car numbers uh, that gave a, a lot of people a, a, a lot of confidence. The stress the group, test, in other words, yeah, right? The stress about, test. Yeah. I'm sorry, and and they've rallied nicely off of that. And and, and to be honest, with you, they're getting a little overbought on a technical basis. Uh, it's interesting. If you'd asked me this question a couple of weeks ago, I would have said, "Geez, this is this could be a big problem because you, you worry about guidance." Because, geez, look at the way interest rates are. Look how flat the yield curve is. Well, in the last two weeks, that has actually improved a little bit. It's only a two-week move, but it will be interesting to see if, if that gives them enough, uh, enough of an impetus to, to, to give a little bit better guidance than I've been thinking. Because, to be honest with you, I was getting a little worried that it was going to be one of those sell-the-news uh, situations where we have all this good news. Everybody's bullish on the group. Everybody said we should be uh, you know, uh, overweight in, in the financial stocks. So I thought we were getting a little too frothy there. And, and uh, maybe this change in the yield curve, the spread in the, the, from the two years and the 10-year, uh, has widened out nicely, uh, but it's still quite low. So my concern is that we're 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 not going to get quite the same kind of uh, uh, boost that we got out of the uh, stress test results. But uh, uh, it's not as bad as I was was thinking, you know, just two or three weeks ago. 
want to thank you very much, uh, Matt Maley. He is Managing Director, Equity Strategist at Miller Tabak. lackadaisical. So we've had languid, we've had listless, and we've had lackadaisical. I'm on tenterhooks waiting for the next uh, synonym. I don't have one for you. I'm sorry. But let's just go right on to the long-awaited repeal, replace. How about repair when it comes to health care? Republicans, of course, uh, returned to Washington this week, and they wanted to produce a revised version of the Senate health care bill. But uh, none of the expected changes so far appear to uh, win sufficient support from at least the 10 GOP senators who have publicly opposed the bill. Here to tell us more about what is happening, if anything, is Max Neeson. He is our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. He knows everything there is to know about the healthcare and the pharmaceutical industry. Max, uh, go ahead. I want to launch your uh comments here with all good wishes go for it what what is going on here with this health care bill so um you know we have the senators back they're working on a new bill uh that, that's set to be released I, I believe on thursday we do not yet know what's going to be in it um it seems to be one of those situations that we've gotten pretty used to where uh there are kind of last minute tweaks and negotiations horse trading all of that um, so what's going on right now is, you know, the eternal uh, kind of tug of war between moderates and, and conservatives on the bill. Moderates, uh, Ted Cruz and, and uh, Mike Lee want uh, basically a proposal added that would allow insurers to sell much skinnier, much less generous insurance plans, as long as those insurers also offered ACA compliant plans. The issue with that is that it makes insurance a lot more expensive when it's ACA compliant, like a lot more expensive. Give me, just can you just give an example because I I know some of the details here because the happening to understand that you know the cost of the premium uh, outweighs the deductible on in many cases that is rather ordinary, but this is even more uh, exceptional. Yeah, I mean you know it's hard to tell unless insurers are actually putting out premiums in in kind of this alternative universe. But um, you know this proposal seems sort of designed to to send them skyrocketing. Anyone who's not sick is going to pick the cheaper non-exchange yeah, compliant like plan. You can get that, a plan four hundred, so, five hundred dollars a month, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, but that comes out to a premium that is going to actually be uh, costing you more than the deductible. I and and also deductibles are going to rise too because that's another another part of the plan. So not only do you have these these escalating premiums, also deductibles, and uh, especially for low income people, if you have a deductible that's you know several thousand dollars, that that's a substantial portion portion of your income. You can't really quite call that healthcare coverage. So, so- that's another difficulty of the bill. So, Max, you know, the the tenor of your discussion and your comments is somewhat negative, but that's surprising because you recently wrote wrote probably the most positive piece you've ever written about how there's actually some silver lining in some of the back and forth that's going on. Can you uh, give us a little sense of what this sort of gridlock among Republicans could mean for the bill and why this could be potentially a positive for at least the people in the healthcare industry? 
Absolutely. So, so I'll preface this by saying that, you know, we've been here before the House bill looked dead with a similar kind of impasse, and that ended up getting done. But uh, what we've heard over the past couple of days, and, and even last week from Mitch McConnell, is the idea being floated of a, a bipartisan fix of some kind. And and I want to emphasize that this is a remote possibility. Um, that just hasn't been, you know, what's happened lately in Congress. But I, I think uh, the potential positive here is that from everything we we know, it wouldn't take all that much to stabilize the individual insurance market. It would take some pretty minor tweaks, a bit of extra spending, but but nothing you know as as disruptive or kind of impactful as, as what we're seeing in this bill. Um, some things like a permanent reinsurance market promising to to fund cost sharing subsidies, uh, just things that make it a little easier for people to stay on insurance and for insurers to stay in the market would go a really long way. So if, if that is a possibility and it seems a little closer now, uh, that probably could be good for the market. Do you find, Max, though, that the, these kinds of uh, discussions on, stra- on sort of strategy and philosophy of the actual system they really don't matter? At this point, because it's just about these 10 GOP senators. And in fact, one of them, uh, Senator Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, uh, commented about the uh, likely insertion uh, of $45 billion in funding to fight the opioid epidemic, correct? $45 billion. Her quote is, that's helpful, but it's by no means sufficient. So if that's her issue, you're going to have to solve that before you get to any of these other lofty uh, philosophical resolutions. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of individual senators have their issues. For a lot of them, it's opioids. For others in Medicaid expansion states, it's a, a little bit of a, a ratcheting back in, in how much impact that is. But it's hard to fulfill 10 of those desires all at once. Uh, th- there is a substantial pool of money with which they can do so. Uh, the Senate bill scored as saving uh, more than $100 billion more against the deficit than the House bill. So that can be spent. And also there's Over 20 talk- years, right? Yeah, over over 10 years. 10 years, I beg your um, pardon. And there's also uh, some talk about ending the repeal of a tax on high-income Americans. That adds another more than $200 billion. So the question is, can you buy, you know, kind of give enough funding to various pet projects. But at the end of the day, it's really hard to fix the kind of fundamental issue here, which is, you know, more than 20 million people scored to lose health insurance. It's, it's hard to vote for that. And uh, it's, it's hard to fix that. Well, we're going to watch what happens. They've got this week and they've got next week, I believe, in order to do this. Uh, Before the break. Well, this is, well, we don't have time, but that, I, I got to <laughs> say, I mean, it just seems odd that you would have such an important piece of legislation done in such a, uh, I don't know. Uh, rushed. Rushed. Thank you. You could say rushed. Rushed. Okay. Rushed manner. Thank you very much. Lisa Abramowitz. No. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us. Max Neeson is our Bloomberg gadfly columnist, our expert when it comes to all things healthcare. Well, if you have uh, not been living uh, in the Midwest, uh, particularly in places that depend heavily on harvesting wheat and grain, uh, you might not know, but there has been a 
drought that has been decimating uh, the U.S. wheat crop. And here to tell us more about it is Sal Gilberti. He is the president and the founder of Tucrium Trading. Also with us, our guide to everything commodities, is uh, Mike McGlone. He is our commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, do you want to maybe just set up what's been going on? I mean, I've been following it in detail just because I'm interested in the topic, but this is a really uh, un- uh, sung uh, saga right now. Uh, tell us about the what's happening. Well, I think you nailed the main part of it, Pim, but I look at that as more the the shorter-term granular situation. Yes, we're having a bit of a, I would say more of a normal weather event. It's it's drought in kind of the plains in the U.S., it's in the Dakotas, in Minnesota. It's really affected the wheat crop. But the bigger picture is it's potentially trickling down to the rest of the crops. And the way I look at it in terms of real, the real big picture is we've had significant, about four, five years of down years in the grain markets, corn, beans, and wheat. In fact, last year, wheat was at a 10-year low, and then plantings were at a 100-year low. So what's happening is, to me is the market's just normalizing. Weather's not so perfect, and prices are coming back. And this might just be the beginning with wheat leading. So, uh, Sal, I, I want to bring you in here. Do you think that the backdrop has been set for a surge in these commodities uh, in the prices? Or do you think that uh, simply efficiencies in farming and, and other sort of sorts of uh, technological developments have increased production capability to such an extent that uh, prices are going to remain subdued for the foreseeable future? Um, that's a great point. But I think what has actually happened is demand has increased so steadily that we are fortunate that these technological advantages have kept pace with the demand. And in general, supplies do keep pace with demand in terms of grain production and grain demand, but grain demand is continually rising, which means if it doesn't rain somewhere, people aren't going to stop using it, that you're not going to let yourself be hungry just because it doesn't rain in some faraway place. And that is the perfect setup right now. We've had uh, wheat prices at lows. We've had corn prices sitting at or near their cost of production now for a good part of three or four years. And what happens is, again, no matter what the news is, today's a great day as an example for that. No matter what the stock market is doing, no matter what technology is doing, people are going to use grains. They don't stop using them. And so when there's a supply disruption, mostly due to weather, and weather does affect even the new technology and new 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 grains that are out there, drought resistance, things like that, you do have an almost immediate reaction in prices, which is understandable. And it's happening now in wheat. And it, it could, as Mike says, be a precursor to what's to come in corn. And, and not to harp on the weather, but because Mike knows this is this, I love the learning about the weather. But the, what's I going to harp on the weather. But yeah, well, okay, but this is interesting. So, but what's happening right now to the spring wheat uh, crop, mm-hmm. uh, I think the USDA says something like only 37% of the wheat crop is in good or excellent condition. And that particular wheat crop, to your point, is high in protein. And so it is in in higher demand, it is in constant higher demand, right? That's exactly correct. And in fact, poor protein wheat, if it's so poor, they'll throw it in an ethanol plant. Exactly. So what happens is, grains are gonna get used one way or another. And people need to understand that farmers will drive the price of grains down to their cost of production because they're gonna plant as many seeds as they can to make as much money as they can. But when it stops raining, people don't stop using. And in fact, people are using more. Over time, 
the the cons- the global consumption of corn, soybeans, and wheat is rising, making record highs almost every single year. That doesn't stop even when it stops raining. So, um, not to not to go real macro here, but when we talk about the weather, we're also getting a heat wave. Yes, weather hasn't been perfect, but we're having quite a substantial uh, heat wave uh, in the South and in, in parts of the Midwest. And I'm just wondering, you know, on a broader level, if there is a persistent heat wave, call it whatever you will. I don't want to get into any political debates, uh, but call it whatever you will. Will this uh, crimp the supply of some of these commodities or is that something that is uh, peripheral and neither here nor no, there? No, it's a, it's a key key point. In the bigger picture, we all know what's happening with global warming. The good news is the last few years, it's heated up in the grain belt, but we've had more rain. Weather's been, but have had more rain. It's that precipitation. If that starts to decline a little, which is historically it always has, you know, you get these cycles of a lot of precipitation and less so, which seems to be kicking in now. Um, that'll be a big difference. But overall, overall heat, you know, hot and dry in the Midwest, that generally means less production. Even though we have these great, you know, you know, advances in technology, it is, you can't grow without water and you can only irrigate so much. And I will say that, that this is a critical time period, basically post-July 4th, that week after July 4th, you can see the extended forecast. You have about four weeks where it really needs to rain and or at least be cool where the corn could survive. This is a very critical time for pollination. If you look back the last 10 years, corn prices have doubled twice from their cost of production. Both times it started in July. Both times it's because it did not rain post-4th of July. It was very hot in the critical pollination time, which we're at now. And so you've been sitting at the cost of production for nearly four years. There there could be some very serious opportunity. I'm only going to give you one word. Would this be a trade you'd put on now? It would be an investment I would consider strongly. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well said. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, Really, really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Sal Gilberti, President, Chief Investment Officer and Co-Founder of Tucrium Trading LLC, which is based in Brattleboro, uh, Vermont. Also, our sincere thanks to Mike McLone, our commodity strategist here at Bloomberg Intelligence and an expert on all things uh, weather, actually grain and other commodities. So we have been uh, touching on a bit uh, the fact that bank earnings will start on Friday and that we're expecting somewhat lower trading volumes. Laura Keller, a financial reporter for Bloomberg News, had a wonderfully colorful take on uh, sort of the effects of slower trading activity at banks, including uh, lots of swiping on Tinder and uh, leaving early for a variety of events. Laura, before we get into the color of it all, I want to just get a sense of where where the slowdown is happening most. I mean, we heard yesterday um, from Jim Bianco of Bianco Research that a lot of traders have trading apps on their phones. It's not just that they're leaving and going to the beach. Sure, sure. And definitely we know any traders listening out there, we don't want to accuse you of not being able to do your job when you're out in the golf resort because, of course, that's always part of your job, right? Um, But no, Lisa, I mean, it's not about necessarily not being in the office. It's the reason that people are not in the office is because there's not much going on. So certainly it's it's a volume problem. You know, if you look at treasuries, if you look at equities, if you look at the corporate bond market, there really is just all down. 
And that's kind of what we're seeing. I, I think there are certain markets um, that are a little bit better off. I, you know, I'm just talking to some rage traders the other day, and you know, they're saying for the third quarter anyway, the last week or so, things have picked up somewhat. So certainly there are pockets, but we are waiting for the big banks to kind of let us know when we hear on all these earnings calls, you know, what they are seeing. Is it going to be something like Jeffries that said, "Hey, emerging markets was a little bit slow for us. Leverage credit, where we're big, that was slow." Or, or is it going to be different? Because as we know, every one of these big five banks has a bit of a different kind of trading franchise and specialize in different products. You know, I, I had a, a really uh, big laugh this morning when I was reading Matt Levine's Money Stuff, his daily uh, compilation of stories. And he quoted a passage from your story. Uh, in particular, one bond trader says he's been slipping out early to watch his kids play sports. And uh, Matt uh, framed this as this is apparently bad. And then it, it talked about how people are saying, well, you know, there's a lot of uh, potential influences that could shake up markets like North Korea and, and, and or terrorist attack. And he said, uh, you know, you can see why this kind of casts some shade over Wall Street, because the framing here is basically, quote, boy, I hope there is a terrorist attack so I can spend less time with my children. <laughs> is that is that accurate? No, I don't think that's true at all. I mean, there's competing desires. I mean, you have family men who definitely want to be able to go to their kids' sports practices and would enjoy doing that on a daily basis. And then, you know, of course, you do have traders who, you know, are here to have a career and certainly a terrorist event. Well, I don't think that's anyone's wish, um, you know, would create some kind of small blip. They, they do tend to do that. But I mean, no one that I'm talking to is saying, hey, I would love to have some kind of, you know, something happen in Syria, um, maybe another London attack. I, no one that I talked to was actually hoping for something like that. Laura, just on a more general note, the bond trading that is going on at these big banks, how much are they doing now versus how much they were doing, let's say, 10 years ago? And is there a strategic decision that banks really, or at least some banks, they don't want to be in this business. It's not profitable, and there's no real reason for it because they're just middlemen. They're not really putting up their own money. They're not holding any of this on their balance sheets, are they? Well, I think payment is a bit of a structural change. I mean, if you talk to traders who've been on the street for you know, 10, 15 years, 20 years, they do talk about how it used to be in, in the old days. You know, There was more volume. There were a lot more people on the desk, less automation in trading. Um, certainly different kinds of markets have a little bit more of that. Treasuries. In a sense, almost more custom markets in a way that you knew as an, a holder of inventory what you had. And then the game or the, the challenge was to figure out whether you've got a match for someone out there who's looking for something that would fit what you've got. And maybe not even a match, you know, not even necessarily talking about, you know, appointment type trading. Pim, you have something. Laura, you have something. And I'm the guy in the middle. But also sort of this more what a lot of traders talk about. It's fun trading, which is the prop trading. So they also got to play their own sort of book. So certainly things have changed. But if we bring it back to present day, I mean, Morgan Stanley, take a look at them. They, you know, James Gorman has talked about fixed income and changing there. I mean, they're not even really trading commodities anymore, which is obviously a large part of that C in FICC, fixed income, um, and the the, the uh, acronym there. But, you know, Morgan Stanley, what was it? Was it the fourth quarter? I can't even remember anymore. But there was one quarter when we had such a very, you know, it was a clobbering at Morgan Stanley. So something like that, you know, they've gone through that transition. I don't know that you can say that for some of the other bulge bracket banks. Well, a a asset management does have some of its uh, positive characteristics when it's other people's money. Thank you very much, uh, Laura Keller, financial reporter for Bloomberg News. You can follow her on Twitter at Laura J. Keller. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.